We, uh, we're, we've been studying uh, through this book of 2 Corinthians. We're going to be wrapping up chapter 6 today. The theme of this book has been the autobiography of a bleeding heart. And today we're going to see that coming so clearly through the text. And, and Paul's his, his undying love for this Corinthian church. And today's, the title of today's message is uh, called Be Separate. <clears throat> I want to start with a little story. Um, John MacArthur was telling of a time when he was in Israel. And he met with um, a family, an Israeli family, who had just recently lost their 19-year-old daughter in an auto accident. And as John was talking to them, it, it had happened pretty recently. The tears were still very real and fresh. The pain was still very deep and tender. But the family was confident that their daughter was in a better place, that while she was not, she was no longer in this earthly tent here on earth, but she was present with the Lord in heaven in her permanent home. But as the conversation went on, they, they, they turned to their other daughter. They had a, a second daughter. This daughter had turned her back on the family, had completely turned her back on the Lord, walked out on them. And John asked the mother, he said, he said, that's a deeper kind of pain, isn't it? It's a deeper kind of pain. The mother, she, she, her eyes kind of lit up like someone was finally connecting with her. And she said, yes, it is. She said, but, but people don't understand that. People don't understand that. And what she said has really stuck with me this week. She said, it's, it's one kind of pain. It's one kind of pain to, to lose a daughter in an accident. It's a far worse one to have one who is alive and turns against you. Far worse to have one who is alive and turns against you. And for some of us, that is, that is all too real. And what John said in response to this, he said, nothing in life, nothing in life, in the, in the human plane, nothing in life is, is more painful than unrequited love. Nothing in this life is more painful than to love someone and to not be loved in return. To, to love somebody who does not love you back in the same manner. I was thinking about the only time that I ever, that I ever wrote a song, a, a real song from my heart. I wrote a lot of silly songs along my life. I've written, I rewrote a comprehensive, of the, uh, comprehensive Russian history to the tune of Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire for a college uh, final once. But, but as far as like an actual song from my heart, the only time I ever have done that was in college. The deepest pains of my life, a time that I loved this girl um, who didn't feel the same way for me. And, and Paul here in Corinthians... He's experiencing this kind of pain with the church at Corinth. Unrequited love. He, he loves them in a manner in which they're not returning to him. And he says here in verse 11, he says, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and have opened wide our hearts to you. The, the literal translation is, we made room in our hearts for you. We came among you. We lived with you. We shared with you the gospel. We, we, we gave our lives to you. Suffered persecution for you. But then he says in verse 12, We're not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. He says, we love you, but, but we are not seeing that love returned in like kind from you. 
He says in verse 13, as a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. Paul's heart reflects the heart of that Israeli mother. He says, I love you, and there's nothing in my life that I long for more than for you to love me as much as I love you. And what's happened here is the people at Corinth, they've, they've essentially they've cheated on Paul. They, they've cheated on the Lord, and these false teachers have come into the church. And there's these men who have brought other ideas apart from Jesus, saying it's not just Jesus, it's Jesus plus something else, or it's, it's something in addition to him. And Paul is begging the church to come back to Jesus. Not, not primarily, to, they don't, he doesn't just want them to, I want you guys to love me. Paul said, I long to present you as a pure bride to the groom, to come back to him. You think about the example of our Savior. When Jesus came to this earth, what pained his heart far more than the, the whippings, far more than the crown of thorns, the nails in his hands, was the fact that the very people that he came to die for were the ones that put him on that cross. The people that he loved so desperately did not love him back. He came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. And likewise, our Father in heaven, nothing pains his heart more than when his children do not return his love. And if those, there are those, if, you, if you're a parent that's ever been spurned by your child, if you're a lover that's ever been crushed by a wayward spouse, a disinterested partner, and you've tasted of the agony that we cause God when we turn from him to other lovers, when we place our trust and our hope in other things. And we do that every day. And it pains him more than anything in the world. So what Paul charges the, the church at Corinth today with, and I believe to us as well, is this call to be separate. To, to be holy, which is really what, what holiness means. It's to be separate. To be separated from something unto something else. Now I think that often this doctrine, this, this concept of separation can be misunderstood so we want to look at this carefully. In verse 14, he says, Do not be yoked to unbelievers. Now, how we interpret this is really going to affect the way that we live this out. So it's important that we understand what Paul is saying here. Oftentimes, this is simply just a, a proof text for saying that you're not supposed to marry non-Christians. Right? There's even a, a website, unequallyyoked.com. It's a Christian dating website. Okay? We, we've used this as kind of our banner statement for, you know, don't marry unbelievers. Now, I do believe there's some application here for that. But if we look at the context, we're going to see it's actually a much deeper and, and broader calling for each of us in our lives. So what is Paul asking here? When he says, don't be yoked with unbelievers... What, what is he saying? Is this a call for us to, to live like a monk, to retreat to you know, Mount Readout and just get away from all the unbelievers and to, to get the bald haircut and to make the chance and to just live? It's no possibility of coming into contact with unbelievers? Is that what Paul is asking? Is Paul saying that we're only to have Christian friends or to only have Christian co-workers to only go to Christian schools and drive on Christian roads and wear Christian clothing and get your meat, you know, chopped up at a, with a, by a Christian butcher, breathe Christian air. I mean, what, what, what is he asking for us here? 
I think if we look at the example of our Lord, we'll see that that's not what he's calling us to. Jesus came to this world. He got right in the midst of the sinners. He ate with them. He talked with them. He walked with them. I clearly think that is not God's heart is to say, do not come into contact with unbelievers. That goes against the very calling to go into the world and make disciples. I think what can shed a little bit of light on what Paul's saying here is the first book that he wrote to the, to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says this, I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Okay, again, same context. Don't associate with the immoral. And he says this in verse 10, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. He says, listen, I'm not just talking about sinful people. I'm not talking about unbelievers in general. Because if you had to do that, if you were trying to avoid contact with people who are immoral, people who worship gods other than me, people who are, are sinners, he says, you'd have to move to another planet. That's, that's not what I'm calling you to here. What he says in verse 11 is this. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Do, with such a man, do not even eat. In fact, he says, drive that man out of your midst. What Paul's talking about here in, in 1 Corinthians 5, he's talking about pretenders in the church. He's talking about people who, who pretend to be believers, but the way that they live clearly indicates that they're not. And this is the context of, the context is always king when you're studying a passage. And what Paul has been talking about throughout this book of Corinthians is the fact that these false teachers have come in, have moved into the Corinthian church, and have been pulling them away from their one true God, from, from the sufficiency of Jesus alone. And Paul is warning these Corinthians to not team up with these false believers and engage in the same immorality and idolatry that they've been caught up in. And so what, what Paul's first application to these people 2,000 years ago was is to not link up with an unbeliever dressed in believer's clothing in a spiritual activity. Don't worship with these kind of people. Don't minister with these kind of people. Don't go and evangelize with these kind of people. And, and, and I believe what the, there, there, is a, there is an application here for us today as the Father speaks to his children, both at the Corinthian church then and Peninsula Grace today. He gives us three reasons why we are to be separated unto him. Why are we are to be holy as he is holy. Reason number one. The nature of believers. God's first reason is because that's who I created you to be. That's who I created you to be. His first argument is that of nature. See, nature, if we've learned anything from animals, nature determines association. Okay? We know the world of dogs and cats, right? Dogs are very, very different than cats. You don't see dogs and cats hanging out, maybe in some cute YouTube video or something, but that's, that's not reality, right? If I've learned anything from cartoons, it's that dogs chase cats, right? And that's because they're different. They have different natures. A dog does dog things. A cat does cat things. I still remember Paul and Maggie had a, had a cat when I'd go over and hang out with Jacob, Smudge. Smudge acted like a dog. 
Like I'd sit on the couch and Smudge would jump up on my lap and lick my face with that weird, you know, that, that texture that the cat tongue has. Like, and I'm like, get away from me, freak cat. Like, that, that's what a dog is supposed to do. Not a, not a cat. Be a cat, not a dog, right? Dogs are over here and cats are over here. That's why, like, you don't see a, a pig chewing on the grass out in the pasture with sheep and you don't see sheep slopping around in the mud with pigs. Nature determines association. And what Paul says, and what Peter says in 2 Peter, he says, we've been given a new nature. We've been given a divine nature from God. And he says the only true, intimate fellowship that should satisfy our souls is that with others who have that same nature. What should resonate in your heart is another believer who, who finds all of their joy in the, same, in the same end in him that you find your joy in and, and that only want to please him in the same way that you only want to please him in. He says it shouldn't even make sense to associate with a different kind of nature. And so what he says here is he says, do not be unequally yoked. Now this term, unequally yoked, it comes from the law. This is, this is, he's referencing back to a law in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 22, it says, Do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. This is the law, okay? Not, you're not plowing a field by yoking, okay? You take a donkey and an ox... And you don't put them together. You don't try to plow a field with those guys going hand in hand. Couple reasons. Number one, the, remember in the, in the Old Testament law, there were animals that were, that were deemed clean and deemed unclean. The ox was a clean animal. The donkey was an unclean animal. So he says, and there's many laws that you'll see that are echoed in, in, in the Old Testament where you do, not, you do not combine things of different kinds. So he says you wouldn't put a clean animal with an unclean animal. But beyond that, there's a very practical reason. The, do the, onky, the donkey and the ox would not go well together. They have different gates. They have different instincts. They have different natures. The donkey's doing wild stuff over here, and the ox is trying to press forward this way. He says, your, your field would be a mess. This would not go well. Okay, I was thinking about this would, this would be like if uh, me and Ali Ostrander got together, <laughs> did a, tried to do a three-legged race, right? She'd be holding me back, I think. <laughs> you know, here's, here's Allie, the cross-country superstar. You know, this high, I walk like a penguin and usually can't stand for an entire sermon. You know, we, although having said that, I, I think I got to first base. This was last year at our uh, softball. Funny that the year I wasn't there, they won the tournament. I don't know if that's addition by subtraction. But you wouldn't combine us together. It, it wouldn't make sense. And, and that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying that trying to engage in ministry, trying to, to do what God has called you to do in your life, partnered with an unbeliever, he says that, that doesn't make sense. It, it wouldn't work. And look at what he says. He goes on in verse 14. Don't be yoked with an unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? He says, by definition, light and dark can't even be in the same place at the same time. What harmony is there between Christ and, and Belial? This is, um, this is another name for Satan. So Satan and Christ aren't going to be on the same team. You're not going to see them going on a missions trip together. Like, that would never happen. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? 
He compares these things that obviously cannot coexist with one another. And these words that he uses, have in common, fellowship, harmony, agreement, they're all referring to the same thing. It's working together toward a common purpose. It's, it's not saying don't interact with them together at all. He's saying don't move forward in an enterprise together. It, it wouldn't work. And it's interesting, the Greek word for harmony is where we get our word for symphony. And this, this word symphony, I remember last summer I was up in Fairbanks and I heard this, this symphony orchestra playing and it is, it's unbelievable. When you have a group of magi- musicians that are that skilled and they're all playing using the same score and they're all following the same leader, the music can be absolutely beautiful. But when even just a couple of the, of the players start doing their own thing, they start, they, they have, they got off on the timing or their, their instruments out of key or just, just a few that start doing their own thing, all of a sudden it can become chaotic and it can become hard to listen to. And here's Paul's point. As we endeavor to do God's work here on earth, he says it would not make any sense to yoke up with a non-believer. So this can apply to marriage. He's saying, why would you enter into the most intimate thing that I've given you and the purpose of marriage to, to, to honor me in a godly marriage, raising godly children, serving God together. How could you do that with an unbeliever? It wouldn't work. And the intimacy that we would have with, in, in friendships and in different endeavors. So the Corinthians were trying to worship. They were trying to witness, teach, and have fellowship with other people in their church who didn't even believe the same gospel. Can you imagine how chaotic a Sunday morning would be here if we had different people in the, in the church service who believed very different things about Jesus? We couldn't have true fellowship. We couldn't truly move in the same direction. This is not a call to, to have only Christian friends or to have only Christian co-workers or to live like a monk up in the, in the woods. This is a call to be so consumed with Christ that teaming up with, with anyone who doesn't believe, who doesn't have that same nature, that same desire, that same passion to glorify God and to serve the, the living Jesus, that, that should be completely foreign to us. That shouldn't be attractive or even be logical. So number one, because of what we've been created to be. Number two, the second reason to be separated is the command of Scripture. Second reason God gives us is because that's what I've told you to do. In other words, because I said so. And, and imagine for a second, I want you to tell me, would this be a good doctor or a bad doctor? Okay? A doctor who got squeamish at the sight of blood. Okay? A doctor who recoils when he sees you know, organs laid out, you know, in front of him. And, and, and he's, a, he's a bit of a, a, kind of an extreme germaphobe. A doctor that won't go anywhere near his patients. He won't even enter the operating room. Is that an effective doctor? Like, no, the answer is no. But, but just as poor of a doctor would be the doctor who doesn't wear gloves. Would be the, the doctor who, who doesn't guard himself from the very diseases that he's attempting to heal people from on the operating table or in the doctor's office or, or allowed himself to become no more healthy than the very patients that he's serving. That wouldn't be much of a doctor either. You see, the skillful physician, the excellent doctor, is one who practices what we call contact without contamination. Contact without contamination. In other words, that doctor is very much in the midst of his patients. He has to be. How can he help him if he's not among them? But 
he does not contract the same diseases that he is trying to save them from. This is what we as believers are called to be in this world, to practice contact without contamination. It's what God spoke to the the nation of Israel to be. This is where we get, in, in verse 17, Paul goes on to say, he's quoting Isaiah here. He says, therefore, come out from them. The people of Israel were in captivity in Babylon for violating the very thing that he's asking them to do here. And he says, I want you to come back out of Babylon. I'm going to bring you back to Israel. And he says, be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Like we said, there was all these laws for them to avoid, avoid unclean things, unclean animals, unclean people. And he says, come out from among them and be clean. Now, we don't have time to get into what all of that means this morning. But basically, God's heart for Israel was this. He did not want to hit them to avoid the world like the doctor would avoid his patients. God's heart has always been for the world. He actually used Israel through Jesus to reach all of the nations. But he also mandated them to live in a way that they would not contract the same diseases as the world, that they would not worship the same gods as the rest of the world, to be in the world and not of the world, for Israel to be to live so holy, so radically different that the rest of the world would have to say, what is going on and who is this God that they serve? For Israel to be a light in the world, to be a a megaphone shouting from the rooftops of God's goodness. This is what God himself practiced. He did not stay in heaven avoiding contact with sinful people. But he came to earth and he slopped around in the mud with us. In fact, Jesus was known in Luke 7, he was known as a friend of sinners. One who would eat with prostitutes and tax collectors. And at that time, eating with someone meant a lot more than it does today. It meant, I associate with you. And I I, I fellowship with you. I accept you. There was a lot of religious leaders at the time that hated Jesus for that. So yes, Jesus was in the world. But he was not of the world. Jesus never got caught up in the very sin that he came to save us from. When Jesus was on this earth, he had a laser beam focus on what God's purpose and will for his life was. And that's why you and I can be holy in the first place. And just like that, you and I are called to this contact without contamination. We are, we are called very much to be in the world, but not of the world. To know your, your physical neighbor. To to befriend your coworkers and with those that we, we... We need to be in the Kenai Peninsula. We, we need to be among the people who, who, are, who are no worse than we are. But we do not need to be of the world. We, we do not need to contract the same diseases as the world to worship me, to worship materialism, to get caught up. That's why Paul said in Romans 12, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be in the world, but don't copy the world. And so you say, well, you know, so, so what's, what, where's the line? You know, where, where's the line? You know, can I, I can have non-Christian friends. I, I, can, I can have non-Christian coworkers. So at what point does it become inappropriate? At what point is it something God would not have for me? Well, I'm not here to tell you that today. I'm not your Holy Spirit. And I don't believe we're going to give each other a list of do's and don'ts. But I want to ask you a couple questions. Ask myself, 
couple questions. Number one, is the situation or relationship that I'm engaged in, is it leading me into temptation or disobedience? This thing that I'm doing, this activity, this, this relationship that I have, is it leading that person closer to Christ or, or is it leading me farther away from him? Is it causing me to do things that would, that would, that would break the heart of God? Number two, is the situation or relationship, is it compromising my testimony? Am I living a life above reproach? What does this look like to others? Now, this gets complicated because there are times Jesus lived in a manner where people who were of religious nature were pointing fingers at him. And his motives were pure. He was doing what God commanded him to. There's going to be times in your life when you do something, when you go somewhere, when you interact with somebody, and other believers are going to turn their nose up at you. And some of that's on them. And this is, this is sticky. This isn't easy. Grace is messy. Law is clean. This is between you and the Lord to ask yourself this question. Number three is the situation or, or relationship enhancing the worship of God in me and or in others. Is this thing that I'm engaged in, is this person that I'm walking alongside, or is this moving toward the magnification of God the glory of God, or, or is this just me? And, and I, think, I think the Holy Spirit's going to convict your heart. He, he's going he's to tell you. He, he's going to be so faithful when we ask. He's going to lead us. And I think we know the difference when we're reaching out to somebody in love and when we're just indulging, when we're just doing it because it feels good, because it's the path of least resistance. I can see that in my own life, in my own heart. And we use all sorts of excuses. You know, missionary dating. I was just at that party to share the light of Jesus. There's, there's, there's a lot of gray areas there. There's a lot of gray areas that come down to motives, that come down to conscience. They're between you and the Lord. But most importantly, see, we were created to be separate. We were commanded to be separate. But at the heart of all of this, I think, is reason number three. Reason number three that we've been called to be holy is the promise of God's blessing. He says, because that's the path to intimacy with me. I think it's easy to think of the call of, of, to be holy as a negative act of departure. In other words, to think about all the things that I'm not supposed to be doing. I mean, how common of a stereotype is it that, well, Christians, it's just all about, like, not having fun. There's this big laundry list of things that Christians aren't allowed to do. Being a Christian is, is basically being a boring human, right? But what we need to think of is, is the positive act of dedication unto God. Think of it this way. It's not what we are separated from. This is not primarily just here's all the things that you're not supposed to do. It's not what we're separated from. It's what we're separated to. It's what we've been separated unto and for. What God has for us. And, and, and here, here Paul's heart. This, you know, this is, I think of, of a bride's purity. What is the bride's purity essentially for? Is it just so that they don't? engage in those things? No, it's primarily for the intimacy and for the sake of their groom. Being, being a faithful or loving spouse is not just about not sleeping with other people. Like, well, I didn't do that, so what a great husband am I. 
No, that's, that's not the heart of it. The heart of it is the complete devotion unto this person. And, and the idea is that, that this, this God-given, beautiful, sanctimonious relationship is so, so dear to me and, and so beautiful. Why would I give this up for all of that? These, these fleeting things, these, these things that ultimately lead to devastation that don't give me what I'm looking for anyway. Why would I go here when I can have this? And it's for the sake of this that I avoid that. It's not just about what I'm separated from. It's what I've been given. And that's what Paul is saying here at the, at the punctuation mark of this chapter. He says, therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. And here's the promise. And I will receive you. And I will receive you. How will he receive us? He says, I will be a father to you. And you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. The God in heaven is offering us an intimacy of a father-son, a father-daughter relationship. And for some of us, that doesn't conjure up the best of images. But this is a good father who loves us unlike anything that we've ever experienced before. Now, dad, now, God does become our father. He becomes daddy the moment that we trust in Jesus for salvation. He is our father. But what he says here is, I will be a father to you. You will experience the intimacy, the relationship of a father. We can, we can experience salvation without experiencing that intimate fellowship with him. You think again of a marriage. You can be married on paper, but if there's no faithfulness, if there's no communication you're not experiencing the intimacy of a marriage. To be married and to experience intimacy in marriage are two very different things. The Corinthian church had broken Paul's heart. They had broken their father's heart through unfaithfulness. These people came in and stole their hearts, and now they're worshiping other gods. They're believing things about God that are false, and they're engaged in very gross Immorality. You look in 1 Corinthians, there's some sick things going on in that church. And it started by moving away from God to another lover. Are we practicing purity in our hearts? There's a couple different kinds. Number one, doctrinal purity. Is there anything that we're believing? Or even perhaps more importantly, is there anything that we're teaching that is contrary to the truth of who God is? I have, to, I have to reckon with this every Sunday before I get up and preach. I do not want to be presenting a false God, a God of my own fashion. And that's why I always urge you to go to the book. And if what I'm saying doesn't line up with your, what you're seeing in the book, then something needs to be figured out here. Don't take my word for it. Isn't that what he said on Reading Rainbow? Um, And it's, this is so important because belief determines action. What we believe about God, what we believe about reality, determines the way that we live this thing out. Are we practicing doctrinal purity? And number two, are we experiencing and practicing personal purity? Is there a relationship or a situation in my life that's hindering intimacy with the Father? Is there a lover that's caused me to go wayward? something that is taking my attention and my devotion away from the Lord. And like the story of the Israeli parents, there's nothing that breaks our Father's heart more than unrequited love when we give our love unto something else other than Him.
the only one that can satisfy us. Paul then concludes, and that actually in, in verse 1 of chapter 7, I wish this was, you know, verse 19 of chapter 6. It goes much better with this section. I don't know why whoever decided to do the chapter breaks put it here. But how he concludes, how he wraps up his thought is this. He says, since we have these promises, since God has promised us the intimacy of a father-son, a father-daughter relationship, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit. Let's get rid of anything in our lives that's hindering that intimacy with him, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. He says, because I fear God, because I adore him, because I esteem him so much, let's get rid of anything. Why do I want this when I can have that? what we're called to. What does this look like in your life? What things this week, what needs to go? What, what things need to stop? What, what relationship needs to end? What activity needs to cease? Or maybe, and oftentimes is the case, needs to change. And, I, and I speci- I'm purposely not giving specific examples here because again, this is a matter of conscience. This is, this is between you and the Holy Spirit. This oftentimes is motives more than anything. We are called to take our light into the darkness, but we are not called to go and let the darkness snuff out our light. Father, I confess for myself how often I turn to other things I get caught up in this world. I allow myself to be conformed to this world, to get caught up. And I'm buying what the world is selling, God. And I turn from you. I turn to other things, and it breaks your heart. Father, I ask for the grace for myself and for my brothers and sisters today to come back to you. That our holiness in the first place, our salvation, this is all built on what you've given us through the Son. None of this we can earn. None of this we can, we can foster ourselves. This must be from you. Father, I pray that we would be a church that would practice this kind of holiness. And Father, that the only one that would satisfy our hearts might be you. May we not forsake the intimate relationship that you offer for the sake of these things that the world is trying to give us that are so fleeting, that are so disappointing, that are so empty. So Father, we ask you for the grace to trust you more and even to respond to you in this way is a gift from you. Father, we love you. We we long to be your, your children who live to please you, to accept the good things that you offer from your hand in your son's name who made all of this possible that we pray. Amen.